Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. Today, we are going to be looking at real estate prices across Ontario, specifically which ones have had the biggest declines recently. Ooh, yeah. Then we are going to be looking at a scary and interesting concept called the Great White Short, where hedge funds actually bet against the Canadian housing market. My name is Nick Hill. And I'm Daniel Foch. And let's start this off by looking at an article titled, Real Estate Prices Have Dropped in Many Ontario Markets Since June. These Communities Are Seeing the Biggest Declines. So the real estate firm Zucasa released a price analysis comparing benchmark price data from the Canadian Real Estate Association, or CREA, for 21 major markets across Canada to see where home prices have dropped the most since June when they hit their peak nationwide at $760,000. A number of cities across southern Ontario made that list. Surprising. Kidding. Not surprising whatsoever. Those cities include Greater Toronto, the, uh, the GTA, the Greater Toronto Area, the Niagara Region, Hamilton, Burlington, London, and Kitchener and Waterloo. The most dramatic drop nationwide was at 8.9% since June, and that was seen in KW, with prices down to $708,000 in November. And in the GTA, prices dropped by 7.7% since June, with the benchmark price down to $1,081,000. That's a 0.1% decrease from the year earlier. London, St. Thomas, Hamilton, and Burlington benchmark prices also fell more than 7% since June, with Guelph trailing behind at 6.6%. Meanwhile, prices in the Niagara region dropped by nearly 5% since June, dipping down to $635,000. Seven cities across Ontario saw the most significant percentage drops in benchmark prices for single-family homes, with Kitchener-Waterloo seeing the largest price decline at 9.7% since June 2023 to $802,000. The same type of homes in Hamilton and Burlington also saw benchmark prices dip by 8.5% since June, with November's market seeing $864,200. Single-family homes in the greater Toronto area also dropped by 7.8% since June, with benchmark prices hovering at $1.29 million two months ago. Now, it it's almost like there's a phenomenon that takes place where prices rise until June and then fall from June onward. Do you think that has anything to do with seasonality? Yeah, it could be dependent on the seasons. <laughs> I mean, we are in the thick of winter right now, Dan. It's yeah, uh, January 17th. It's currently... Whatever was going on in Alberta just made it to Ontario. Oh, you guys, Alberta, you guys could have kept that. What what are they called? Uh, polar vortexes or yeah, whatever? Yeah, for man. sure. We're doing one of those. Feels Sounds like, like a good snowboard trick for like like SSX <laughs> Tricky. You remember that game? That was a great game. Yeah. Yeah, the polar vortex is not fun. It feels like minus 25 outside. And guess what? When it's that cold, Canadians tend to, I think, do a little less overall. That's a little less getting out and about and maybe driving for dollars or a little less transacting because you don't really want to list your house or or go out and buy a new house or an investment property. For the most part, obviously, people are still doing their thing. But, you know, would you rather go buy or sell a house on a, on a beautiful 
spring day or when it feels like minus 25 outside. And and I think that's what's affected. Now, before we finish off here, it's interesting to see that, you know, in Ontario and some of these markets where prices did skyrocket much more than than kind of 10%, we're really only seeing, you know, the most dramatic drop nationwide was at 8.9% seen in KW. So I think, it, and, and again, you know, actually, sorry, let me finish the article and then we can get back and sure, forth yeah. here. Uh, so the average price of a home across all property types in the Greater Toronto area peaked at 1.33 million. That was in February of 2022, and that was prior to the Bank of Canada's first interest rate hike. Average prices eventually dropped to 1.03 million, so basically $300,000 wiped out. But they did rebound in the spring amid, you know, temporary declines uh, that we saw in fixed mortgage rates back then. Uh, now, RBC released a report that says it expects a quote unquote sluggish condition in Ontario's real estate market to persist well into 2024, keeping buyers in the driver's seats in most markets. Okay, so again, this this is a this is my question here. Where are prices going? Because if something rose, you know, 15, 20, 30 percent and it's dropped 10 percent or not even 10 percent, is there still negative price discovery to be to be felt in some of these markets, Dan? You know, it's a great question. I think, and and we're going to go through a report that was put out by Cushman and Wakefield that is probably one of the most excellent reports I've read in yeah. granular detail about w- exactly what we talk about on the show, which is investing in smaller cap residential. And it shows sort of their estimated path for house prices to be gradually coming more in line with rents. And if I think about what is the fundamental price floor for for a market in real estate, from my perspective, it really ends up landing at when are investors going to come back into the market and start buying houses to rent out. Mm-hmm. And we're still not there. We're still not at a point where it makes sense to buy a house, even a duplex in a lot of markets, you still can't even cash flow. And so either rents need to go up, which they have been generally, but they they are moving down for the past three months, or prices need to come down a little bit. Or something else needs to change, which is kind of what we're starting to see happen. And, and it could be the, the government trying to do this with policy is they're increasing the density of houses. And so now all of a sudden you can maybe get three units or four units in a house and now your cash flow scenario becomes much better. But your yield to cost, uh, which is outlined in this Cushman report, is really only like cash flow positive in like five markets in yeah. in Canada. I see the smirk on your face because two of them we own property in. But yes, yes. But um, I mean, but we'll save that report for yeah. another episode. Well, I think yeah, and I think that that's a, that's kind of the other thing is like, you know, you're saying why these markets and not the others. So the big thing is like, I I think it was exclusively based on credit sensitivity. So you saw markets where the income in that area was detached from house prices more than other areas. Mm. You saw a run up, like a lot of people leaving the GTA, going to Kitchener Waterloo as an example, great city, big benef- beneficiary of the urban exodus out of Toronto. House prices ran up a ton in order for people to afford those. They had to pile on more and more debt. And then as soon as interest rates go up, prices come down because that market depends on interest rates more than other markets. Yeah. And so it really, to me, is just a function of credit sensitivity. So it's going back to that, which markets were more credit dependent and in, in which markets had those pull factors during 
you know, that, that great exodus during COVID, right? Like, okay, I can go to Kitchener Waterloo. I can buy my beautiful little century home. It's a lot bigger and better than the condo I was living in. It's got the backyard. To be able to afford it, I need to max out my variable rate mortgage. And now that the tables have turned, interest rates are higher. Prices are now coming down because we're not seeing people go there like the, like we used to. Yeah, that's that's pretty much exactly it. And I think you, you could see this same phenomenon taking place across the country, right? Like yeah. Calgary, you're still seeing it. Calgary's still yeah. ripping because more and more people are leaving Ontario and they're they're going. But you, now you got to the point where Calgary is a little bit detached from those fundamentals, detached from rent, detached from income. And there's a degree of vulnerability because it really just depends on the economy and credit. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how this whole thing shakes out yeah no and uh you know that we'll be here covering it so uh so stay tuned so okay it's it's just based off of that discussion it's pretty obvious that there's volatility in prices uh you know dan here in the gta we just saw the lowest transaction volume in like 23 24 years and that's true of canada as well so in canada the last year that we saw saw so few houses sold was um in 2020 or sorry 20 2008 so right so we're 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 20 plus years for for the gta and we're and we're you know almost 20 years for yeah for canada as a a country right so i mean ultra low transaction volumes that means people aren't buying they aren't selling they aren't moving inflation seems to be sticky now uh, we're reading this on the day inflation came out yesterday it's back up cpi was high but it's so interesting right because CPI was high and, and I'm, I'm usually the guy who will, like, I try not to lie with statistics, right? There's this book called how How to lie with statistics, but that's good of you. (laughs) Yeah. If I'm going to use like the whole time I've been saying when everybody else was cheering on that CPI was coming down, I said, core has not come down, but core has come down now and CPI is high. And so the bank of Canada, we know looks a lot more at core inflation Mm -hmm. than any other type of inflation. And core is less sticky than the other components. I posted an article that said that there was this talk at the Canada Club from a couple of economists and or Canadian Club at uh, the Fairmont with a couple of economists and, and it was regarding the Bank of Canada and, and a lot of people were saying rate hikes could still be on the table. That's where we're at with inflation. I don't necessarily see that taking place. I think that if you're if you're trying to decide between a hike and a pause because you're going to stagflation, you're just or sorry a hike and a cut, you're probably just going to pause. Oh, yeah, you know, exactly. like they're Find not the gonna, middle ground. They're yeah. not going to keep beating it up. Again, we haven't even experienced yeah. some of the ones that, right? Like then I think it was the last episode or one of the one of the more recent ones where we were saying that it takes between 12 and 18 months for an interest rate to work its way through the economy. So yeah. if we were to hike again, I mean, that would, I think, be devastating. But I know the article you're referencing, and it's so funny to see that, you know, one thing happens and boom, domino effect, right? Now the, the headlines are, okay, you know, cuts are off the table or hikes are back on the table and sentiment goes you know haywire again so i mean regardless of of core or cpi inflation isn't doing what we what we want it to right now and and then to compile on that volatility in prices ultra low transaction volumes inflation sticking around immigration which is you know the historic bull case for canada may also be slowing yeah. and we just did another episode on on that so go back and check that that one out that's why or have we just seen the peak, peak in population yeah yeah um yeah the budget won't balance itself but immigration might apparently <laughs> um and and actually it's interesting because you know 
what I always look at, like really easy way to just get an idea for what the heck is going on is just looking at the Canada five-year bond yield and what the market thinks is going to take place because of these announcements. And you see the, the Canada five-year government. And, and to be, it's funny because the market's wrong a lot, yeah. but it, but it is, I just, I look at it because it's like, it's a good reflection of consumer sentiment. Even if consumers are often wrong, like most people should just put their money in an S and P index fund. And that's why people like real estate because yeah. they get it. Yeah. But oh, look at that. I'm, since I started speaking, I've had the, the government of Canada five-year bond yield up. And I was about to say it's gone up for, from 3.4, it opened at 3.4 this morning and it was almost at 3.5. It touched 3.5 earlier and now it's back above 3.5. Uh, now it's back at 3.49. But anyway, I'm not going <laughs> to sit here and give you a play by play on what's happening with the bond, but we just saw a significant jump, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, 10 basis point jump in, in bond yields in the course of a half day. But it's so funny because just based off of, of that, and, and by the way, a play by play would be, we could sit here just all day and here. just go. Yeah, it'd be great. Easy <laughs> yeah. content. Yeah. I don't know how many people would consistently tune in for that, but uh, well, if we had like a good uh, like hockey commentary going, like I just tell you, oh, what there happened. it goes again. So, yeah. Up and down. <laughs> okay, we'll stop that there. But yeah, I mean, you know, there, there's there's a lot of volatility, right? And it's so funny to see that the way that that kind of that trickle into the effect, right? It's like good news comes out, bond, and then you know, consumer sentiment is hit, bond yields change accordingly. Bad news comes out, the media gets a hold of it, consumer sentiment gets a hold of it, bond yields change accordingly. For sure. Which, which is which is funny. Anyways, all of those things, price volatility, low transaction volume, sticky inflation, immigration slowing, bond yields, consumer sentiment, that, that's kind of all a great segue into this next article here. Now, Dan, when I started to put this episode together, this was supposed to be a news episode where, you know, you guys are all familiar with that. We take several news articles, we look at the highlights, we chat about them, and then, you know, kind of distill them down and make them as relevant for you, our, our amazing listeners, as possible. That did not happen here. So I found this next article, brought something up to you, and you're like, oh, yeah, that reminds me of this. Anyways, this this went from being a news article to now. This is the only this is the second piece of news that we're going to look. But I went like full investigative journalist here. Good, I, I love it when it goes for like full a hot investigative second. journalist. Okay, <laughs> cool. So, article headline says: "Bad bet against Canadian housing market crushes hedge funds returns." Small hedge fund betting on housing market crisis had double digit losses last year. So this hedge fund expected prices to to fall and they built a position based on that and prices held up and and bank shares rebounded and it's interesting because i i I do some consulting and and conversations with some of these hedge funds that have some some long positions some short positions in the canadian uh, housing market and it's some of them like the only they're so big that the only mechanism that they have to be able to short the canadian housing market is through banks and so and banks are a tough one because canadian banks are so freaking strong man so banks, anyway banks are tough anytime yeah. we we talk about banks in the mortgage space we you know i have this bad joke that my banks are like casinos right the house always wins so trying yeah. to beat a bank is is yeah. uh Man, I've even like I've even capitulated where like when we, I was doing the read on rate hikes, sorry rate cuts by the end of the year, I'm like, oh, this is what your big six lenders are forecasting, and they're the ones who give you the money. So that's pretty much what drives the market. Yeah. Like it's it's not really the rate. Like if if they feel the the that the lending environment is better, they might reduce their spreads, which means rates can come down, right? Or their pricing gets better. I mean, anyway, they they're really in control. They're in control of house prices too. Like they <laughs> they 
the house, everyone's like, oh, a house is worth what somebody's willing to pay. Well, what somebody's willing to pay is what a bank's willing to lend them. And so, there and that's go. based on the appraisal because they can literally just be like, by closing, like, oh, we don't actually like this valuation. Yeah. So, knock, um, knock yeah. 50 grand off, no mortgage knock 100 grand off. And, and we've seen that, right? Like, yeah. there's, there's, especially recently, it's, uh, for sure, it's kind of crazy. So, um, before we go on, maybe we can get a bit of an, uh, a quick reminder. I know you like to define stuff. You're, I've you're been known like, for, they call it mansplaining as well. <laughs> mans- wow. Come so on. Before, before we go on, could you just maybe mansplain to me what a hedge fund is? No, I can't, but I can dictionary, dictionary okay, it for you. That's like your own designated <laughs> version. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, look, uh, we don't talk a ton about hedge funds on, on this show. We've talked about like, you know, the Blackstones of the world and stuff like that. But we leave the hedge funds more for the the guys over at the Canadian investor. But hedge funds do play a role, especially in, in what we're talking about here. So it's important to have a bit of an understanding of how they operate. It's an investment vehicle that pools funds mostly from accredited or institutional level investors to employ various investment strategies in order to generate high returns. So essentially, they take money, they invest it on behalf of investors, and hopefully they make money. Now, unlike traditional investment firms, hedge funds often have more flexibility in their investment approaches, allowing them to take both long and short positions in various financial instruments, just like Dan was mentioning. The goal is to generate positive returns regardless of how the market is doing. This is by using complex techniques such as leveraging derivatives and alternative investments. Hedge funds are typically managed by experienced investment professionals that wear Patagonia vests and spend their summers in the Hamptons drinking expensive Pinot Grigio. I'm kidding. I threw that part in. That's... Good old probably Pat- good old Patagucci. Probably accurate, but not uh, not entirely. So, anyways, hedge funds are also this is where it gets interesting. They're also subject to less regulatory oversight compared to some other investment funds and, and other investment vehicles. Yeah, so there's less, but then there's also kind of more, which is some of it where the hedge piece comes in is like they have to have like a long short position, so like exactly. if they're short something then they have to hold a corresponding opposite position. And some of them are like, I, I, I'm struggling for an example, but it's like, if you own like a, like a dog food company, like you would also have to own like a, that's, I just went down a horrible road because there's Human really no company. good example. <laughs> no, it was like, if you owned like a housing company, you would also like a, you know, like a home builder, you would yeah. also have to own like, I don't know, like a, Again, I, I'm I'm so I'm picking the worst examples. I'm gonna think of a really good one, but you have to have a, an opposite trade that like basically is playing the devil's advocate on your right. on your example. Right. Um, that's where the word hedge comes in. You yeah. have to hedge your bets. You kind of like you got to weigh the scales evenly between between the long and short. Yeah, and so that so that if you are wrong, you don't blow up the whole economy. Exactly. Yeah. So some well known ones would be Citadel, which has 339 billion in assets, and they were. Um, Recently under fire, they made an enemy with uh, an army of redditors. Yes, and Bridgewater, which has about two hundred billion in assets under management, which was founded by the legendary Ray Dalio, whose books about cycles I love, and also has that that YouTube video, "How the Economic Machine Works," which go watch that. I watch if it you with haven't. my with my five month old. Yeah. He loves it. I w- <laughs> Start them young. You heard it here first. The other, uh, this is an aside, but haven't we made that joke about Ray Dalio where like someone's chirping him in the comments of somebody and he's like yeah. some old white guy giving advice, yeah, financial yeah. advice. And it's like, that's literally like the modern father of economics yeah, right there. Yeah. 
Okay, so those are two of the biggest hedge funds in the world. Now, the one that we're discussing today, the one that we referenced in the article is nowhere near that size. It's called Spartan Fund Management. It currently manages over a billion Very for their militant clients. names, like yeah. you know, Spartan, Citadel, Viking. Bridgewater, even. It's just like, yeah, like it's Bridgewater almost is like, like pretty. Yeah, that, that's like it's that's a tame bridge, for it. You know? But yeah, the other ones are like, don't mess with us. Seriously. So- Spartan Fund, although intimidating name, not as big as the Citadels and Bridgewaters of the world. Again, just over a billion in funding. So as far as hedge funds go on the smaller end, but as far as businesses go, you know, they're, they're pretty big. Now, here's where it gets interesting. If you head over to Spartan Fund Management's website, they have a tab for each one of their funds. Now, Dan, can you read me the first fund's name and description, please? So the first one is uh, BB Fund, in brackets, BB? Canada. Yeah, <laughs> BB Fund, Canada LP. It's a multi-manager, multi-strategy. It aims to provide unit holders with long-term capital appreciation through exposure, a diversified portfolio of investment managers, managing niche strategies, and a bunch of other buzzwords, target co- low correlation to the S&P 500, and high-risk adjusted returns. There is no restriction on strategies, but they may include fundamental long-short capital markets, commodity and currency arbitrage, event-driven, fixed income, and quantitative market neutral. Yes, I understand all of that perfectly. It's that Yeah, that's like literally if you – like the, the chat GPT prompt for that one is like, explain to me my fund with the most buzzwords possible. Well, where are you trying to set word world record? So, yeah, I mean – Whatever all that means, right? The next one listed is 11 Fund. It reads, 11 Fund is a short-term trading fund focused on Canadian equity markets. Again, nothing really to see here. Now, let's move on to the third and final one. This is where... I got some Latin buzzwords going on This is on where here. it starts to get good. Yeah, well, actually, oh man, that was a missed opportunity. I did not, unless you know this one off by heart, the Libertas Realist, Real Asset Opportunities Fund. And Dan, I know you're, are you ready to, do you know Libertas off the top of your head, the Latin origin of that word? Uh, well, like Liberty, it sounds like, so probably that. We'll take it. So this fund is a short biased equity. The description for the fund reads, Libertas was designed to allow investors to benefit if there is a collapse in Canadian housing prices. The fund uses fundamental top-down macroeconomic analysis combined with detailed bottom-up fundamental analysis and due diligence to determine individual securities that best express the fund's macroeconomic investment theme. So all of that, the rest of those sentences can be forgotten about. I want to focus in on the first one, investors to benefit if there's a collapse in Canadian housing. What qualifies for a collapse? Like, what are we talking here? Because like, like, we saw a big, big drop. Biggest, well, that's drop, what I biggest drop in house prices in Canadian history was 2022. So did investors I mean, did they win? Make money did off Did they of make that? money? We got to call them. Are we, are we, is 8.9% a collapse or are we looking at like a 20, 30%? To me, like collapse means like you're like 50%. Yeah, more, like I'm thinking right? like, like devastation, right? Yeah, so, yeah. I mean- that's quite the elevator pitch, you know. Hello, Mister Investor. Would you benefit? Would you like to benefit from the devastating collapse in this country's housing market? <laughs> you know what, though, like realistically, if I'm, I, I, it would not surprise me if you had like 
Canadian pension funds investing in this because as a hedge, as a hedge, going back to hedges. There's right? your like, example. It's like yeah, there's your good example. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, because like you know they're exposed to the Canadian economy. If yeah. they need to hedge against something, it is. It's perfect, man. What a what a setup. <laughs> Come on, I did, couldn't have planned it better. Thank you. <laughs> so if you view the details of that fund, that is the Libertas Real Asset Opportunities Fund that is betting against Canadian housing. It provides some points on why you should invest in this fund. Dan, can you hit us with those four points that they provide? Sure. So number one, belief in the investment thesis. Canada has one of the most overvalued housing markets in the world and the Canadian economy is over-reliant on debt growth and the housing market. That actually sounds pretty true to me. Pretty accurate. Yep. I forget what podcast we're on, but uh, <laughs> but that sounds pretty pretty correct. Interested in participating in the aggressive short bias strategy that targets the cap to capture significant downside moves in the equity markets. Number three, one of the few strategies of its kind available in Canada. So Canadian, I guess Canadian versus Canadian. <laughs> uh, it's like not, three yeah. Spider-Mans pointing at yeah. each other. Um, and suitable for investors. This is the hedge part. Suitable for investors seeking protection from long-term bear markets who can tolerate high risk. So you went down quite down the rabbit hole on this one. Well, it, we're not done yet. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I did feel like as I was doing this, I was going from like, you know, normal podcaster to investigative journalist. And are we like, are we starting a tr- pivoting into a true crime podcast here? Or? <laughs> People would love that. True real estate true, crime. That would be cool. It's like Canadian's two favorite yeah. things. Yeah. Like a true, like a, you know, like Dirty Money on Netflix. Yes. Like that, that would be sweet. great series. We should, we could do a couple episodes like that. Like, um. We definitely should. Other People's Money, that book. Um, Man, that was actually great. great. A little sub-series, yeah. like four-part, yeah, like, yeah, like something like that. I mean, they like would that. just fit in probably nicely into the episode yeah. Rolodex. That and that. So Other People's Money would be an awesome one. And then- um, There's all those guys that, like, one? escaped to Bali. The right like, the, the, Mick, the Mick guys from, like, those guys from Vancouver that, you know, last seen in Bali, Indonesia, ran away with a couple hundred million bucks. Yeah, and then there's- um, there's like the I think is it sweethearts and then there's the developers. There's a yeah. bunch of you know what we're gonna do. We're gonna if if you want to hear one of these episodes, just let us know. If, <laughs> and, and if anyone if, from Netflix is listening, <laughs> we'd love a budget for for a show based off of this. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, like it would be it would be cool, but I, I think we could just fit it right into this. Yeah, into, yeah. yeah we'll do we'll one. Sneak next in. time. We do like one of those motivational uh, episodes. Will be It'll be anti motivational yeah. motivation to yeah. not do yeah. the stuff yeah. we're talking about. <laughs> Don't yeah. Okay. Yeah, for sure. Anyway, look at that. The note here says, anyways, get back on, let's get back on track. Because I knew we were going way off topic. Oh, were you typing that into me? (laughs) Okay, (laughs) let's go. So they're they're Libertas uh, real estate asset um, fund, the one that we're talking about, the one betting against the the housing market, lost about 14% for the year. That's according to estimates from the funds manager seen by Bloomberg. It had been poised for a positive year until the U.S. dollar-denominated units tumbled 11% in November and 13% in December. Now, going back a little bit, we saw Canadian home prices decline in 2022. They stabilized a bit last year. Um, that was supported by you know the massive wave of immigration that we've talked a lot about and a fairly strong strong job market for for most of the year the benchmark home price in november was 735,000 which was a 0.7% increase from the year earlier and up 37% from 5 years ago now that's the end of the article and i just included this piece right here cuz i thought it was kind of funny it's the very investive investigative journalist i did not reach out but the people in the article did reach out to spartan and spartan didn't respond to a request for comment so I just took that as a, you know, they probably wouldn't respond to us either. 
This is where it starts to get good, Dan. Yeah, so it's probably a, a good time to bring up what is known on Wall Street as the Great White Short. Did you mean the Great White Shark? Because Shark Week isn't for a few months still. Uh, no. Uh, the Great White, sh- <laughs> the Great White Short. I guess similar to a Great White Shark, the concept is both scary and potentially life threatening. So, what is the Great White Short? Well, this idea goes back over a decade. It's based off the thought that the Canadian economy is propped up by an inflated housing market, supported by the oligopoly of the big six banks. So U.S. firms were betting against the banks and thus essentially the entire financial system in Canada to collapse in a similar fashion to what has experienced in the U.S. in 2008 with the global financial crisis. And they did this by short selling. Now, it's not a term that we've covered on the show. We usually have this type of stuff to our podfathers, the Canadian investor, to talk about this kind of financial activity. So Anyway, here we go. Nictionary, can you give me a definition on shorts? It would be my pleasure. Short selling is a trading strategy where an investor borrows shares of a stock from a broker and sells them into the market with the expectation that stock price will decline. The investor then buys back the shares at a lower price and returns them to their broker, profiting from that difference in price. So in essence, short selling allows an investor to bet on the price of a stock or other financial instruments going down. In this case, we're talking about the Canadian housing market. So they would bet on the Canadian housing market going down rather than going up. It's a way to profit from a decline in the value of an asset instead of the traditional way from profiting off of the essentially incline. Now, short selling is obviously risky as losses can be unlimited if the price of the asset being shorted increases significantly. So now that we've got that definition, Dan, back to you. What is the great white short? Yeah. So from a Financial Post article in April of 2020, the latest great white short argument against Canada's banks has included at least one of the main players in the big short, the Michael Lewis book and movie about a few investors who hit it big by betting against the U.S. housing market in 0708. So Newberger Berman money manager Steve Eisman sparked a fresh round of skepticism about the soundness of Canada's housing market last March by calling out lenders that underpin it in the pages of the Financial Times, one of the world's most influential business publications. I love these short short sellers who are just like so like and and you know I've had one of the most prolific short sellers in in the market on on, on a Twitter space with me yeah. talking about just this. That was a and great for those one. of you, it's not uh, nearly as PG as the podcast, by the way, but if you're interested in some, some extra listening on this, I would encourage you to go l- listen to the recording. But uh, he, he, it goes on to say, Canadian banks are now facing a storm that will test their celebrated soundness. <laughs> and you know, it's, it's fascinating from my perspective because we have like so much evidence and the, the concept of like, there's a lot of nefarious stuff going on in the Canadian real estate market. From money laundering to mortgage fraud and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. The US, like people get punished for that. And so it's easy to be like, this is going to collapse because these guys are doing bad stuff. But it's like, these here, guys have been doing that for a while, guys. Yeah. So here it's like, I don't know. Like, and, 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 and I really think that the, the realtor lawsuit, the class action lawsuit against realtors right now is going to be a very, very big test against of the justice system in Canada versus the U.S. But I digress. A a number of factors kept the Canadian housing disaster at bay, such as stricter regulation, low interest and unemployment rates, and strong population growth. So the banks also enjoy the backing of the Canadian government via mortgage default insurance through CMHC, the Canada Mortgage and Housing Corporation. 
So that last part of the article is where things start to get interesting for me. The, you know, quote unquote, stricter regulations compared to the U.S., stricter banking regulations. Those are mostly, I say, still in play. However, what has changed since that article came out in 2020 is that uh, we don't have low interest rates anymore. And unemployment rates have changed as well. Uh, and, you know, it's... Uh, uh, well, unemployment is, is kind of the thing that everyone's watching. Dan, remember the HOPE acronym? We brought it up several times in the show. The E stands for the unemployment, or sorry, the employment part. That's the last one in the HOPE acronym. Can you just quick give a quick reminder, a quick definition, or a quick mansplain, whatever you prefer, as to what uh, yeah. HOPE yes. means in, in the economic sense? Yeah, well, we call it dansplaining, too. Um, <laughs> the. The HOPE acronym stands for Housing Orders, Profits, and Employment. So the idea would be that this is the order in which things respond to interest rate increases or decreases. So if interest rates decrease, housing will be the first thing to ramp up in a recovery. So you know all the realtors that are pumping that rate cuts are going to come and save us aren't wrong. They might just be very early because it will it will be <laughs> yeah. the first thing that responds. I meant three it years just, from now, guys. It will, it will be the first thing that responds. It's just it will take a while to respond because before like you have rate cuts, but at the same time you have recession mm -hmm. and both of those you need to start your recovery before housing can be the leading part of the recovery. Yeah. Same thing on which we saw in the in kind of the crash phase of it, which was in, literally Bank of Canada fired a warning shot, twenty five bips housing market dropped like 10% like the next month. Yeah. And then it fell for the rest of the year as rate hikes continued to go up. So housing dropped first because it's the most credit sensitive product product that's attached to consumers. Then you see orders, which is people ordering stuff, ordering lumber, building houses, ordering whatever Amazon packages, yeah, furniture because yeah. they don't have equity in their houses anymore. Then you see profits because companies suffer as a result of decreased revenue, which increases t top line increases or decreases the bottom line. And then employment because they have less money, they hire less people and they there have to go. lay people off and unemployment yeah. rises. So, so each that's one an of those of your hope acronym appreciated as always now. And each one of those that H O P E imagine like a big circle around each one of those kind of like looping back and forth. And that's the cycle, right? Like each one of those things, it takes a while for that to happen. Remember the economy is a very large, slow moving machine. Now, if we look at that hope acronym and apply it to this article and this concept, you know, that article three, four years ago now was written at a very different time. So it's kind of interesting to reanalyze this and say, well, the hedge funds that are betting against the Canadian housing market, you know, how will that play out now in, in this different world? Yes, we still have the regulations. Yes, the government backed banks and CMHC and, and all that stuff. Yes, the population is still growing, even though we may have already kind of seen the peak of, of immigration. But again, now we've got that stickier inflation. We've got higher interest rates. We've got lower transaction volume. So what if employment goes south, which again is kind of what everyone's waiting for? What if rates stay higher for longer, as we're seeing a lot of people predict? What if our population grows slows as we're kind of starting to see you know, news coming out of India, news coming out of, of Canada saying that 
you know, essentially people don't want to come here anymore because we've sold them a false promise. And not even just that, like economic prospects are bad yeah. everywhere, yeah. right? Like, you know, it's hard. Like I, we did just see peak population growth for Canada probably for our lifetimes. That's my guess. Putting it on. Putting there it right we there, go. That's Let's timestamp that and January peak 17th. Too. 2023. And peak realtors. Peak realtors, yeah. yeah okay. And peak, peak that, population that's, growth. That's probably not a bad thing. So, you know, would these or could these things that we just mentioned push that short sell position to favor the hedge funds that that again that are betting against it uh, it's it's definitely an interesting conversation but it's also scary things to think about i mean not thinking about it 2023 being peak realtors is not scary to think about <laughs> it being peak population growth Sorry, is really scary we do to think love about. you <laughs> but but like you know does do all of these fundamentals could all of these fundamentals kind of unwind at the same time like were they right that there was some underlying factor that could actually completely break the Canadian economy rather than just like it, you know, be a correction. It's like, we're fully toast. Like, yeah, like there's it, correction like and global collapse. financial crisis that you're, yeah. And, and I, I don't necessarily think that, like, I think that we might be able to salvage our way out of this. Probably the longer term consequences is that you see this continued decline in GDP per capita, which is just reduction in quality of life for Canadians. And, that and then it just ends up being like it's not the Canada that it, it always was. And it's it not takes the Canada a long time. It used to be. Yeah, yeah. I do feel like such a boomer saying that, but Back I mean, like you know, economically, like yeah. on paper. No, no, no. I, I hear you. So interesting and scary things to think about for sure. Yeah. Also, I should mention again, it came up in conversation as it has dozens of times probably over the past few years. The Big Short is such a good movie, uh, one that we've brought up a ton, and they do a much better job at explaining the role of hedge funds, short selling. And they do it all in the context of real estate. Uh, so if you want to see the likes of Steve Carell and Ryan Gosling doing their thing on the silver screen or Margot Robbie explaining investment terms in a bubble bath, don't so listen to random. Dan and I go watch so it. <laughs> like if you really think about it. Yeah, it is kind of hard to compete with that, I think. Um, anyway, let's wrap it up there before we get carried away. <laughs> if you want to get more connected with the community of real estate investors, make sure you go check out our meetups the first second Tuesday, sorry, second Tuesday of every month in 15 cities across Canada. Uh, link in the show notes. If you want, if you need a better accountability system and want to learn more in a more in-depth setting, uh, go to realist.ca, link in the show notes, and we'd love to have you as part of our education community. I think that's everything for today. See you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037. Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.